So I invite you, please, take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 16. Uh, so I'll be reading verses 21 through 27, really just the last uh, seven verses of the, chap- of the book here. So Paul writes, Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my countrymen, greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you, and Quartus, a brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God for the obedience to the faith. To God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. So last time, <laughs> last time we looked at verses 17 through 20 as we saw Paul's final exhortation to the church at Rome here to avoid divisive people. Avoid people who are in the church who cause divisions with their smooth words and their flattering speech, who cause to try to turn you away from the teaching which you have heard and learned. These divisive people do not serve the Lord, but they serve their own interests. As Paul says here, they serve their own bellies, uh, their own uh, interests. So avoid them, shun them, give them a wide berth, do not receive them into your communion. And we said that this is not just people who disagree with you on calendar days or whether or not to eat meat like we saw in Romans 14 and 15. These are people who actually teach something contrary to the core truths of the faith. And we looked at a few examples last week. Uh, The most likely example would be people like the Judaizers who taught that you had to be circumcised and become Jewish before you can become Christian. We also looked at those that the Apostle John deals with who deny that Jesus came in bodily flesh, that he was somehow a, just a sort of appeared to be human kind of an idea. This is, this is an error, this is a heresy called docetism, that Jesus wasn't really human. Uh, and then we looked at people like uh, legalists and antinomians who also caused strife and division within the church. So he says, avoid these kinds of people. Avoid these people who seek to divide the church over false teaching. And then he advises the people to be wise. Be wise in what is good. Be skillful. Be experienced in what is good. And then simple or innocent, naive in what is evil. And then he closes with a promise that God will crush Satan under your heels. The enemy of God's people will be crushed. He was crushed on the cross. And, and we, are, we have the victory in Christ and we will have the consummate final victory when Christ returns and Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. So as we look at the passage before us, it's quite simple. provides no real challenges uh, to us. There are those who are with Paul in Corinth and as Paul signs off his letter, they want to give their own greetings as well. So they send their greetings. And then he closes with a benediction, uh, a rather long benediction, but he closes with a benediction Uh, as he signs off this letter. So we'll look at these verses, and like I said, then we'll have a little bit of time at the end uh, to sort of wrap up Romans in a nice little bow before we go on to the next thing and have hopefully have some time for extended questions if there are any. 
But first, let us look as Paul now relates the greetings from the saints who are in Rome. Now earlier in Romans 16, the first few verses, we saw that, Rome, that Paul is greeting saints who are in Rome. These would be people that he knew, people that he worked with, traveled with, uh, labored with, ministered with, who now find themselves in Rome. So he sends his personal greetings to these people. Now here, what we see is now those who are with Paul in Corinth are sending their greetings now to the saints in Rome. And the first on the list is Timothy. Now, we know quite a bit about Timothy through the New Testament. Uh, We see here, Timothy, my fellow worker. That's how Paul addresses him. And Timothy heads the list here. And we first meet Timothy in the book of Acts, right? That's Paul's journeys, his missionary journeys. And on his second missionary journey, as Paul was going through the towns of Galatia, he comes to the towns of Derbe and Lystra, and that's where he runs into Timothy there. In Acts 16, uh, verse 1, we see then he, that is Paul, came to Derbe and Lystra. And behold, certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. So Timothy is spoken of as a disciple. And if you remember in, uh, I believe it's 2 Timothy, when Paul is actually writing to Timothy, he, t- he says right before he gives you that passage on how all Scripture is inspired by, by God and is profitable, he says right before that, he says, you have learned from your mother and your grandmother the faith that you have been instructed in. So we know that Timothy was a disciple because his grandmother and his mother have, must have discipled him as a child, even though his father was Greek. And his name Timothy is a Greek name. As we said, he hails from this region of Galatia, which is in Asia Minor, is a province, a Roman province, from either the town of Derby or Lystra. I'm not sure which one. But we know that once he, once he met Paul, he immediately became Paul's, one of Paul's traveling companions. So from chapter 16 on, on, Timothy is with Paul, traveling with him, working with him, laboring with him as he goes on his missionary journeys and spreads the gospel to other places. Timothy was a very trusted, very well-loved, very uh, faithful fellow laborer with Paul. Paul, in his first letter to Timothy, calls him my true son in the faith. My true son in the faith. That's how close these two were. That their relationship was as a father to his son. So Timothy was one of Paul's most trusted, most closest confidants, most trusted friends, and one of his most faithful traveling companions. In fact, when Paul writes certain letters to certain churches, he includes oftentimes Timothy along with, not that Timothy wrote the letter, but he's saying here, I'm Paul, and I'm here with Timothy, and sometimes even with Silas, and I'm writing to you the saints in Philippi or Colossae, or Thessalonica, or that letter to Philemon. In all four of those letters, Timothy is included in the initial greeting from Paul. Now, Timothy here is spoken of as a fellow worker, and the word there is is sunergos. It's a compound word, which means one who works together with another. In other words, again, as we said, Timothy, very faithful, very trusted, Someone who labored side by side with Paul in the ministry of the gospel, who worked together with him. If Paul were Batman, 
Timothy would be Robin, right. If Paul were Sherlock Holmes, Timothy would be Watson, right? Okay, that's how close these two were. Paul sends him. In fact, he was so trusted by Paul that Paul sent him to the church in Corinth to remind them of Paul's ways in Christ. 1 Corinthians 4.17 The church in Corinth. And we're going to start looking at the 1 Corinthians next week, Lord willing. And we're going to find out that that church, as gifted as they were, as um, wealthy as they were, as well-off as they were, they were a church that was... That it was a mess there. They had a lot of issues going on there. And, and we're going to go through those issues, but Paul sends Timothy to them to sort of correct their thinking. It's like, look, I'm going to send my guy. I'm going to send my man Timothy to you so that he can instruct you further. And whenever Paul needed sort of eyes on the scene or boots on the ground, he would often send Timothy to that place to get a report. And then Timothy would come back and he would report to him how things were going. In fact, so trusted was Timothy that when he needed to send someone to the city of Ephesus to sort of take over the reins of that church there, he sent Timothy to Ephesus. So when Paul writes 1 Timothy and when he writes 2 Timothy, he is writing to Timothy while he is in the city of Ephesus, ministering to the church there. So Timothy was a fellow worker and a true son in the faith to Paul. Now the others that we see here in verse 21, Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, are not as well known. But Lucius, according to Acts 13 verse 1, is a member of the church in Antioch who was one of the prophets and teachers that were there And he was from the region or the town of Cyrene where apparently Simon the Cyrene, the guy who carried the cross of Jesus on the way, the Via Della Rosa, was from there as well. So Lucius, the only thing we know is that he was from Cyrene and he worked with Paul at the church at Antioch and he was one of the gifted teachers and prophets that were there. Jason, we know a little bit about Jason from Acts chapter 17. Jason is a man from the town of Thessalonica, which is in that, you know, in that, on the Greek peninsula there, in Macedonia into Achaia. Thessalonica, when he was there, uh, this guy Jason was uh, one who welcomed Paul into his home and, 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 and uh, was hospitable to him, entertained him at his home. And then when Paul was kicked out of town, the people were so roused that they dragged Jason out of his home and, and, and cast him before the people. So Jason was treated shamefully because of the fact that he housed the Apostle Paul while he went his way through Thessalonica. And now Sisypater, he's got an interesting name. His name means Savior of his Father. I'm not sure why. Uh, it could be the same person as another one named Sopater who was from Berea. We see him in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. Other than that, we really don't know anything more about him. So these are fellow countrymen, fellow laborers with Paul along with Timothy who are with him in Corinth and they send their greetings as well to the saints in Rome. And now in verse 22, we see this other man here named Tertius where he says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. 
Now, when you look at the beginning of Romans, who wrote Romans? It's not a trick question. <laughs> Paul, right? Right. So who's this Tertius guy who says, I wrote this letter? A scribe or a secretary, right. Actually, the question is, the Holy Spirit wrote Romans. But Paul wrote Romans too. No, he's credited. He is the secretary. He is the one uh, who wrote down what Paul was dictating to him while he was writing. This is a common practice. Uh, oftentimes, you'd see uh, you know, either the writer in this case saying, hey, I'd like to say hello too. So he's, he has his own. You know, these are probably the only words Tertius ever wrote in this entire letter that was, were his own. Uh, sometimes you see in a letter where Paul at the end says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. In other words, he's like, okay, give me the pen, Tertius, whoever is my secretary. He's like, I want to write this greeting here now with my own hand. I need to say something to these people. It's just a common practice to have a secretary who wrote down what Paul would dictate. I'm not sure if that was easier for Paul to just to, you write, I'll speak, or whatever. Maybe, I don't know if Paul had something wrong with his hands and he couldn't write well. or uh, I mean, based on the number of beatings he had, and the fact that he was stoned and whipped and caned and shipwrecked and all these things. I don't know, maybe he had some, you know, disability with his hand or something. Or Yeah, there, there's that too, because he talks about, yeah, there's common, commonly thought of that he had problems with his eyes, so maybe he couldn't see what he was writing. Whatever the case is, this guy Tertius was a, a, another fellow laborer who wrote and wrote, actually literally dictated or took down what Paul was dictating to him. And then finally, we see some greetings from a few other people. Uh, we don't know too much about these as well, but in verses 23-24, Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. And Cordus, a brother. And then he closes with another, <laughs> you know, P-P-P-S, you know, the, uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now, so what we know about Gaius here is that he was a host. He was a companion of Paul's in Corinth and apparently a man who himself Paul baptized. Right? And we're going to learn that in 1 Corinthians. He says, I didn't baptize any of you except Gaius and maybe one other person, he says. So Gaius was baptized by Paul himself, but apparently Gaius was one for whom his hospitality seems to have been well known. He was Paul's host, and he was the host of the whole church in Corinth. So maybe he was wealthy. Maybe he had a nice large home that he can have this home church meet in. Whatever the case is, he is known for his hospitality, and he greets the, the saints in Rome. Here we have this, another guy here named Erastus. So apparently he was the treasurer of the city of Corinth. So the gospel had gone out so far in Corinth, and Paul's labors were so fruitful there, that they got up even to the halls of power, right? You've got the person who is in charge of all the money in the town of Corinth is a believer, and he sends his greetings as well to the saints in Rome. Then finally, we have this guy named here, Quartus, which means a fourth. Um, nothing else is known except that he's a brother. It says Quartus, a brother. And that's, that's enough, right? He is a fellow Christian. He is one who is with Paul as well. And it kind of goes along with what we said last time, too. You know, one of the things to take from these, other than it's like, okay, greetings, what's so big deal about it? Well, these are real people that Paul ministered to and that Paul ministered with. 
And just like in our church today, you know, if we were to write a letter, we might get some people say, well, you know, uh, Lyndon sends his greetings and Mark, who wrote this letter, <laughs> sends his greetings. And, and Jerry, who was, you know, a great, host, you know, great host, sends his greetings too. You know, it's just these are real people in a real church that Paul ministered to. And it's, it's comforting to know that the church is made up of real people. Real people, even though they may not have a big part to play in the founding of the church, they're there. They're they're like sort of like in on the ground floor, if you will. Well, finally, Paul closes his letter here, finally, uh, with his own benediction, his own final words to the saints in Rome, and he begins by invoking the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse twenty-five. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began. Now the one who establishes us is God the Father. He is the one who establishes us. And that word establish translates a word, sterizo, uh, which means to make stable, to place firmly. So, you know, if you're building a house, you want to make sure you have a good, sound, solid foundation to the house or it's going to fall down. So you establish this. You make it stable. And in a world that always seems to be set on shifting sand, it is God who establishes us and sets us firmly on the foundation of Jesus Christ, which is what Paul says. That foundation is my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. So the God who establishes us according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. And what Paul means here really is he has in mind pretty much everything he's written in Romans so far. That is Paul's gospel. This letter is a summary to the Romans of Paul's gospel. A detailed summary. This is what he taught. This is sort of like, since he hasn't been to Rome, it's sort of like his curriculum vitae his cv he's like this is what i teach in the churches that i have established and as i come to you i'm giving you my bona fides my resume if you will of how i preach this is paul's gospel and what paul preaches to the church in corinth what he preaches to the church in ephesus what he preaches to the church in thessalonica is the same message that he would most likely minister to the saints in rome and what he has proclaimed in this letter. Now, when he says here the preaching of Jesus Christ, he's not speaking of Jesus' own preaching. Okay, That's, it may sound like that, you know, the preaching of Jesus Christ, but really what he means is that the preaching of the gospel of which the subject is Jesus Christ. The preaching of Christ. This is what he says to the Corinthians in chapter 2, the first two verses, where he says, and I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is the preaching of Christ. It is the preaching of which the subject is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So he's like, God will establish you in my gospel and in the preaching of Christ crucified. And that gospel is according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began. 
Now we've seen the word mystery. The, the word mystery should not be a mystery to us because we've seen it before. Uh, it really just speaks of something that was previously hidden or concealed and is now made known. It is now manifest. It is now revealed. Now it doesn't mean that the gospel wasn't spoken of in ages past during the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament saints are saved by the same faith that the New Testament saints are saved by. That was Paul's argument in Romans 4. The same faith that saves Abraham is the same faith that saves us. When Abraham believed and was accounted to him as righteousness, so too what we believe is accounted to us as righteousness. The only difference is that the saints in the Old Testament had a faith that was looking forward. Everything in their Gospel was sort of hidden or veiled. It was preached in types, in shadows, in, in a sacrificial system that all pointed forward to Christ. Whereas our faith looks back. It looks back on the cross. It looks back on the substance that has been revealed now in Christ. So we are looking back. Uh, the Old Testament saints looked forward, but the point is, is that it is all the same Gospel. It has just now been revealed in the fullness of time what all those types and shadows in the Old Testament pointed forward to. But again, the point is this. In turbulent times, it is God who establishes us on the bedrock truths of His Gospel. The, one, the Gospel has now been revealed and made manifest. And this mystery now is made manifest. As we see now in verse 26. Made but now made manifest by the prophetic Scriptures, made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for the obedience to the faith. So again, it is now in that fullness of time that this mystery is fully made known. What the Old Testament saints looked forward to has now been revealed. As we saw, you know, as you, if you remember in 1 Peter, when 1 Peter talks about how the holy men of old were moved and how the, the prophets of old did not uh, speak from their own opinions, but then they, it says that once they prophesied, they diligently searched to see of whom these prophecies were pointing forward to. Well, now that is made fully known in the fullness of time. My, my microphone go? No, okay. Just felt like it went out for a second there. So again, in the Scriptures, we see the Scriptures prophesied it, and it is these very same Scriptures that now make it known to all nations. So just like the Great Commission, this Gospel must go forth to all nations proclaiming the same Gospel that God uses to establish us. That is the Gospel message that goes forth. And then finally, he says there at the end of that verse, this Gospel is all for the purpose of the obedience to the faith. So the prophetic Scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. Now I don't expect you to remember this because this goes all the way back to June 28th of last year. But in June 28th of last year, and I, if you, you know, want to go back and listen to that lesson, um, we mentioned this phrase before. Romans begins with this. In chapter 1, verse 5, he talks about the obedience to the faith. And now he ends the letter with the obedience to the faith. And what you have there is sort of like one big sandwich, right? If the, if the bread is the obedience to the faith, 
you've got like a Dagwood sandwich, right? From Blondie, you know, it's multiple layers. It's all there. Everything in Romans is bookended by this obedience to the faith. And we're like, you know, when we back last year, last June, when we looked at that, we're like, well, what does it mean? Well, it can mean three things. It can mean obedience to the faith objectively, meaning the faith sort of the faith once for all delivered, our Christian faith. So we are obedient to the Christian faith. It could mean, there's another fancy word called exegetical. I don't expect you to remember that word. It's not like adiaphora. But uh, basically, it's just saying the obedience, which is faith. In other words, our obedience is believing, is faith. But I suggest that the phrase is best understood subjectively, as in obedience to the faith, a faithful obedience, an obedience that flows out from our faith in Jesus Christ. So this whole gospel, this whole letter, this whole letter which is bookended by this obedience to the faith, I believe is for the purpose so that we will have a faithful obedience. And then Paul signs off by ascribing glory to God through Jesus Christ in verse 27. Finally, to God alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. That's it. Now, I've got more, but I mean, that's it for the book of Romans. <laughs> um, how many thought we would never get to this point? <laughs> no, you shouldn't think that. I mean, just the way we've been working through it, you knew we had to come to an end at some point, right? So... Uh, Believe me, there are people who have gone and spent 10 years going through Romans. There are people who have spent 7 years going through Romans. There are people who have spent 5 years going through Romans. You're getting it at the bargain basement discount of just over a year. Just over a year. Um, don't, I hope you don't feel like you've been cheated because I didn't go through it for 5 years. But uh, sometimes I think you can go through something in such detail that you start to miss the forest for the trees. And uh, as wonderful and as rich as those studies are, I'm sure that spent so much time in Romans. Um, you spend so much time looking at a particular tree, you're not really seeing the forest. And I think that can be a detriment. But before I open up the floor for questions, I thought it might be useful to have sort of a little look back and a look forward. So we'll look first at the look back. And again, remember that what Romans is all about it's the gospel, but it's the righteousness of God that is revealed to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's mission statement, his theme verse for this whole book, goes all the way back to Romans 1, 16 and 17, where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, the gospel, is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So this gospel message, which establishes us, which is our foundation, reveals the righteousness of God. And it does so by showing God's righteousness and how we, human beings who are born in sin and depravity, fall woefully and miserably short of that righteousness. Both Jew and Gentile are sinners, and we all fall short of the glory of God. But then, the gospel, that great but in Romans 3.21, but now 
the righteousness of God is revealed to us apart from the law, because the law and the works cannot attain it. But now, the Gospel reveals the righteousness of God in the person of Jesus Christ, who is put forth, as Paul says, a propitiation, an an atoning sacrifice, an appeasement to the wrath of God. And he gives us his perfect righteousness by grace through faith. That section there, Romans 3, 21 through 28, or to the end of the chapter 31, talks about this. And that's why Paul then quotes the prophet Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. The Christian life is one that begins in faith. The Christian life is one that is powered and carried through by faith, and it's one that ends in faith. And this is the great doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Uh, Romans 3.28, Therefore we conclude that a man, a person, is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. The law cannot make us righteous. The law cannot save us. We have to be saved by faith. And then he goes on to show us how our justification has benefits, the chief of which is peace with God. Now that we are justified, we have peace with God and access by faith and hope in the glory of God. Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. But we also learn the ugly truth of how sin came into this world, how uh, we were born in this sin because of Adam's failure. And we see at the end of Romans 5, Paul gives us a tale of two Adams. How the first Adam sinned and brought death into the world, and how the last Adam, Jesus Christ, was righteous and brought righteousness and salvation to the world. Romans 5.18, Therefore, as through one man's offense that is Adam, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, that's Jesus, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. So our justification not only has benefits, but it also comes with some obligations to holy living. The person who is justified is also being sanctified. You cannot separate the two. You can distinguish the two. You cannot separate the two. If, if justification is us being declared righteous by God through faith, then sanctification is us being made righteous by God's Holy Spirit through our obedience. So Romans 6, a few verses from there. Romans 6, 4. Therefore we were buried with Jesus through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father even so we also should walk in newness of life. Again, that obligation. You, were, you died with Christ. You were baptized in Christ. You were raised with Christ. Therefore, we need to walk in newness of life. Well, Romans 6.11 Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Part of sanctification is this idea that you need to reckon, you need to make known in your own mind that you are, because of your union with Christ, you are dead to sin. It no longer has power over you. And you can now live to righteousness. You can live to uh, obedience in in Christ. 
And then finally, Romans 6, verses 18 and 19. And having been set free from sin, so we were slaves to sin, but now we are set free. You have now become slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Again, that obligation. You have been justified. You have been saved by grace through faith alone, but you're not saved by faith that is alone. It must be accompanied with good works that flow out of that faith and out of that justification. But then after seeing our frustration with the law and obedience that we struggle with because of indwelling sin, we saw that all in Romans 7, how I want to do the thing that I know is right to do, but I can't. I often do the thing that I don't want to do. That's what I end up doing. We see that our victory comes through the Holy Spirit. It's not that we have to white-knuckle our way through the, through the Christian faith, you know, kind of grab on and like, okay, I'm going to grit my teeth and I'm going to be righteous. No, God gives us the ability to do so through the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The Spirit is given to us so that we can live righteous lives, so we can walk according to the Spirit. And we see so many other benefits of the Holy Spirit in Romans 8 not the least of which is perseverance and glorification, how we are the first fruits, Paul says in Romans 8.23, of the Spirit. And even we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait for our adoption to be confirmed, the redemption of our bodies. And we see that great golden chain in Romans 8.28-30, how we know that all things work together for good to the one who loves God and one who is called according to His purpose. And we see that chain for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. And that chain is unbreakable. So you can really just shortcut it and say, those whom He foreknew, He also glorified. And all the steps along the way. And finally, we see that this love of God is unbreakable because it is a love that is rooted and grounded for us in Jesus Christ. God loves us as He loves His Son, Jesus Christ. And that chapter, Romans 8, ends with, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Then Paul answers the question, of course, about the future of ethnic Israel in Romans 9-11 through in which we learn that God has a plan for ethnic Israel as well. That they will be 
brought in. Romans 11.25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. The word mystery. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness, in part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, there is a partial blindness, a hardening of the heart of ethnic Israel. But once the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then all Israel will be saved. That's what Paul says. Not every single person. Certainly not those who have not been elected. But what we're going to see at the end is a mass conversion of Jewish people. All of them elect, but a mass conversion of Jewish people. And then finally, how do we live out the Gospel? How does walking in the righteousness of God look like? Well, that is answered with the rest of the letter, Romans 12-15, through 15, but it all begins with that proper mindset that we see in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Where Paul says, Now, after having given you all of this gospel truth, I appeal to you, I beseech you, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect to the will of God. That is how we are to live our lives, as a living sacrifice, as a living sacrifice of thankfulness to God because of all of His mercies, one that is not conformed to this world, but is transformed by the Word of God. So that's the look back. That's the retrospect. Let's look now at the look forward, the prospect. And the question really is this, how has this study of Romans changed you? This is really the most important question that we have to answer as we come to the end of this book. How has this changed you? It's all good to have the right doctrine and if you were asked on a quiz to be able to give the right answers on the quiz and all that stuff. It's it's good to have that knowledge, but how has this changed you? Because if this hasn't changed you, do you really believe it then? That's the question. Do you see the importance of this book? that the Apostle Paul wrote, his magnum opus. And again, it comes down to that section that starts Romans 12. Are we being transformed? Are we blown away by the mercies of God? Does that then lead you to offer yourself as a life of living sacrifice to the Lord? And then are you striving by the power of the Holy Spirit to not be conformed to this world, to not walk in its ways, not be shaped by its mold, but to be transformed in your thinking so that you are, in a sense, otherworldly. The Gospel of Jesus Christ saves us. The Gospel of Jesus Christ changes us. And the Gospel of Jesus Christ preserves us firm in our faith until the end. Now that is all that I have. (laughs) Um, So we are done with Romans Uh, I will open up the floor to questions, but just uh, again as a way of reminder, next week, Lord willing, on the 26th, we will just go to the next page. (laughs) So we will flip over from Romans 16 to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Next week, uh, mostly it will just be an introduction to the book, so we'll... You know, we'll do all the stuff that normally you get for an introduction. You know, we'll talk about who wrote it, when it was written, why it was written, to whom it was written. Uh, We'll go over some of the main themes in Corinthians. And, um, you know, and then we'll look at the greeting as well. 